0: Welcome to the Fire These Times, I'm your host Julia Youp. If you'd like to support this podcast as well as other projects, please head out to patreon.com slash or check out the support page for other methods. If you cannot donate, you can still support this podcast by leaving a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you for listening and stay safe out there. So ever since the explosion in Beirut happened in August 4th 2020, a lot of people have been genuinely concerned about what might come after. This is a tale that's unfortunately not new in Lebanon. Following the civil war, we have had this private company called Solidaire, which in tandem with the government, it had this uh, special status, managed to essentially quote-unquote reconstruct most of downtown Beirut, The problem of course is that it did so under a neoliberal model and 30 years later downtown is pretty much a ghost town. The same sort of happened in the southern suburbs of Beirut in what is now called Dahyeh. And there is a risk, of course, that this might happen in the destroyed parts of Beirut this time. So is this a realistic risk? What are some of the things to look out for? Can things be done in a different way? Can we actually rebuild Beirut in a way that makes sense, in a way that actually prioritizes the people that live there? These are some of the questions that I asked Dr. Mona Harub, uh, my guest today. She is a professor at the American University of Beirut, she focuses on urban studies and politics and she's been writing quite a lot of essays on this topic, essays that I highly recommend and that I would of course link up in the blog post. So this is a conversation about urban studies of course but it's also a conversation about rebuilding. How can rebuilding actually happen when the forces that cause this destruction are still in power? So we look at two case studies, the example of Solidaire in downtown Beirut and the example of Elisar in the southern suburbs of Beirut. You don't necessarily have to know much about Beirut to find this episode interesting and that's obviously part of the the goal here. The idea really is to look at what's happened in Beirut as a warning, not just for people who live in Beirut or in Lebanon, but really for everywhere else. What has been happening in Beirut and in Lebanon more broadly for the past three decades can really happen anywhere. There's nothing particularly um, exclusive, let's say, about what we have been going through. And it's part of why I'm having these conversations to connect us with what other people go through. So anyway, that's enough for me. And just a quick audio note. Uh, We had to record this on the phone. So if the audio quality sounds different than usual, uh, this is why. Hopefully, it shouldn't be too much of a bother. Thank you for listening.
1: I'm Mona Hadib. I'm a professor at the American University of Beirut. I work on urban studies and politics. And I teach in the graduate programs of urban planning and policy and urban design. Uh, My training is in architecture and urbanism and political science. I'm also uh, one of the research leads at the Beirut Urban Lab, a new uh, research platform, relatively new, established in 2018 at the Maroon Samahan Faculty of Engineering and Architecture at AUB.
0: First of all, thanks for having this conversation with me. Um, as with m- m- most guests these days from Lebanon, I always start by saying, you know, I know this is not an easy time to talk about any of this, so I appreciate uh, the time. Um,
1: Sure thanks Joey for having me and indeed it's not uh, normal times at all. I don't know how we're functioning but I guess it's certainly not resilience as a word. I don't really like to qualify our ability to function as that but yeah I guess it's somehow a survival mode of sorts
0: yeah for sure why not like i just i just uh a few weeks ago i i i published an essay on the the like questioning the the concept of resilience as well uh,
1: mm-hmm.
0: mainly from a person uh, mainly from a personal perspective mission i'm not i wasn't really saying that it's wrong if people feel that way but mm-hmm. uh yeah i just think it, it probably won <laughs> it has run its course um yeah so I uh, would we'll start with that, if that's okay. Like I, I'll just start by asking the the um, like since post since October fourth, the the always difficult question of uh, have how have you been living uh, the past few months? Um, I guess the past year, especially uh, since October two thousand nineteen, is when a lot of these things started happening. But just like in general, your reflections on the multiple crises within the crisis, in a sense. Mm.
1: Yeah, it's a. Uh quite difficult question to answer, I would say uh, broadly. And uh, without going to the personal, I think uh, it's a very personal experience for every one of us, uh, very challenging and very difficult experiences for every one of us, depending on their trajectory, their positioning in Beirut and Lebanon more generally, professionally, personally, emotionally. As far as I'm concerned, um, It has been quite hard for the past few years, uh, I would say, uh, with all the struggles seemingly reaching somehow uh, a dead end. So I feel that the blast sort of sealed that dead end in many ways of confirming that uh, there's uh, something that needs to fundamentally and structurally change. And uh, that reiterates for the end time, the um, the uselessness of the political system we live within and the limitations of trying to work within it or uh, uh or even you know questioning the ability to uh, challenge it from without this big question about how do you change things do you go in and change or do you uh make a revolution and change it from without and I think there's a major dead end in my own mind about what works. I was working for the past years on documenting the efforts of urban activists and challenging the sectarian political system and I was quite convinced that you know if we uh, inflict more cracks in the system that these cracks at some point will coalesce and will lead to some change and I I strongly felt in the aftermath of the revolution of October 2019, the beginning of the very violent repressions by the sectarian uh, regime, and uh, then the blast that the apparatus of that uh, sectarian regime, the geopolitics that uh, cushion it as well, Uh, the international aid apparatus that also uh, Um, was set in place in the aftermath of the blast, all reminded me and I would say colleagues with whom I work of this uh, very big monster that needs to be fought and uh, made us question uh, the modalities of the work we've been mobilizing. So I would say there's a lot of disillusion and also deep questioning of of what we are doing. how we are doing it, what works, what doesn't, should we keep on doing what we're doing? So real deep existential questions about these issues that I'm sure are shared by many.
0: Yeah, yeah, of course. Ooh, um, one of the, I don't know, symbolic, I guess, uh, the return of Hariri, which is not just symbolic, it's, it's very concrete, uh, just yes. made me think because I, I've been meaning to interview you on We'll just have this conversation with you on, on your, of one of your main research topics at the time, which was the, the Elisar project, the reconstruction of South Beirut, the suburbs, and so on. And mm-hmm. um, it just so happens that currently, I mean, we, most people, I think, or many people or many more people would know more about Solidaire than they would about uh, Elisar. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. And it just so happens that now we have both um, Hezbollah and government and, of course, Hariri now coming back. It just reminded me that we're dealing with the dual the uh, monster, which in some ways is the same one. It's just the side of the same coin. Mm-hmm. Uh, and mm-hmm. now in the aftermath of August, what are some of, um, you know, according to your own readings from your own experience, what are some of the, risks that we might see in terms of, you know, uh, what are are they called, real estate vultures and, you know, that sort of thing that might come in uh, in those destroyed places in Beirut and actually try and profit out of it?
1: Yeah, it's a great question because there's a lot of... uh Uncanny resemblance to the early '90s uh, to the first decade of the post-war, of the post civil war reconstruction phase, currently with these actors that are repositioning themselves at the time it was uh, Hariri father uh, Rafiq Hariri, and uh, there was uh, quite of a honeymoon with Hezbollah that, uh, and, and amal with, the, with the, uh, the, what I referred to in my earlier work as the enemy brothers. Because we tend to forget uh, that both parties, uh, Amal and Hezbollah, did fight each other very violently, and mm-hmm. brothers in the same f- in the same family fought each other in the streets of Burj uh, Burjebrajne, uh, and the other neighborhoods, and and what became to be called Dahi. So there's really something very absurd about what we're living, and I think it, you know, builds on this. Uh, difficulty of having to cope again with what seems to me so much of a deja vu it feels like you know i've written this i've worked on this i've seen this before it's so predictable it's unbelievably the same of what we've what we've lived what we've critiqued and debates and seminars and writings and discussions what you know people who are a generation older than me wrote about and decried in the early 1990s against the Solidaire project. What I tried to work on with ELISAR, which was one of the, you know, there was a series of projects, maybe I start with that, and the aftermath of the civil war with the, with the. Um, uh, with the return of Rafiq Hariri as a prime minister, and this, you know, big euphoria that accompanied that uh, return, as you know, the person who's going to salvage Lebanon and to place it on the map of, uh, you know, uh, a leading country in the in a region that will uh, compete with Dubai and what's happening in the Gulf. We are going to be a global city, a competitive city. Uh, uh, in that in that geography of the middle east the rebuilding of downtown by Be- beirut was the emblem of that post-war reconstruction that will reposition lebanon as a uh, as what was the motto back then medina areeqa al-mustaqbal you know um uh, an ancient you uh, know
0: uh ancient city for the future
1: right something uh, that that motto that was very strong at the time and that was well analyzed by people who worked on this project so you know within that framework there were also other build other projects that were being thought about for the reconstruction not only of beirut but of beirut and its I don't like to call them suburbs, let's say to metropolitan Beirut, that idea of repositioning greater Beirut on the map. And they were all coming from the same approach of maximizing real estate value as much as possible in the aftermath of the civil war, where you had uh, destruction, but where you also had a lot of open abandoned areas that could be repurposed. And of course, the coastal areas were being eyed because this is where you have a lot of potential real estate value. So the same way that land was reclaimed uh, from the sea in downtown Beirut, one third of the land uh, was built on the sea in a land reclamation project that you know makes the books of urban design uh, and that, provided the Solidarity Company with additional uh, square meters to, to develop and to make money from. Uh, there were also ambitions to develop the coast of the north suburbs of Dubai, which is currently the, the Dubai waterfront. Uh, it was supposed to extend south towards Bish Hamoud and to repurpose the garbage dump uh, over there, which is still there with the Linor project. Uh, this didn't come through over the years, so it's still a garbage dump, like we know. And there was another project to develop the south parts of Beirut, uh, the, the, namely the squatted areas on the sea uh, that are contingent to Jnach and Uzai, and to develop them also into touristic projects that would bring important real estate revenues to, uh, to, the, to the government. And all these projects were done with this approach of a public-private partnership to real estate companies that would you know, uh, develop these projects and somehow the, pu- the public, the public institutions would facilitate these operations rather than uh, you know, be a key partner. It, it, the operations were seen as the state is withdrawn and is facilitating these market developments, which would be led by private companies. So while Solidaire worked and we had a special law that was issued by the Parliament by by everyone who endorsed it, very few people stood against it, and we had a special law that gave superpowers to the real estate company that became Solidaire, which was an acronym at uh, the Société Libanaise pour la Reconstruction et le le Développement du Centre-Ville de Beyrouth. So we had that a real estate company in downtown Beirut, with its special powers. We can discuss it if you're interested. Uh, we had very different setups for the other places. So in Elisar, what's very interesting is that uh, Hezbollah and Amal positioned themselves as the defenders of this territory, of this part of Beirut, and said, we don't want another solitaire in this part of the city, and uh, we want to make sure to, to retain the property rights of people there and the project transformed into a very different project than what it started to be and became uh, a a project that included touristic developments on the coast but also a social housing component in addition to uh, relocation components into these social housing units and also industrial zones that would serve these units. In a first, you know, attempt at think at introducing a social and economic layer to reconstruction in Beirut, and it didn't develop under the real estate company um, uh, operational setup. It was developed as a public agency, according to the urbanism laws we have in Lebanon. So it took a very different course, and we have today a public agency named Elisar which is situated on the. Airport Boulevard in um, in, Ghbairi, actually, in Hartahriq specifically, which employs a number of public employees, which is responsible to apply the master plan that was developed by Dar al-Handasi yet again, uh, but which uh, has done almost nothing of that master plan. It it restricted its work so far to operations of uh, land uh, reallotment, reallotment and grouping, what we call in Arabic domoferous. So it it facilitated some real estate operations in the areas that extend between the Gulf Club of Lebanon to the old airport boulevard or road. So you see there that there has been somehow uh, a number of middle-class real estate development of residential buildings and some commercial activities next to them. And that's about it. In the north, the Lenore project did not come through, but the waterfront uh, uh, project uh, developed by Joseph Houri did. And you already see that some people live in these residential buildings that were developed there. You have the yacht, um, uh, the luxury uh, uh, yacht uh, uh, resort uh, with the club, private club that services this area. A corniche on the on the edge of it that's well used by the public of. Uh, of the northern um, uh, uh areas of beirut as well so this works partially so these are all remnants of this area and uh, of this era sorry and that approach to redevelopment which we can, we label as neoliberal because it gives primacy to private real estate actors to private property to maximizing the real estate value of land and to uh, to i would say uh, delete the social value of land the public layer of of views, the cultural heritage dimension of pra- spatial practices, is still very much in the minds of these people, and the one can really be concerned with the present government being put by the same minds of these political sectarian uh, players when we look at the re- reconstruction process that's happening in the neighborhoods affected by the Port Blast.
0: Yeah, this... Um... Just like shortly after the 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 blast, um, just a few days after, I was speaking with a friend who I was involved with um, in saved Beirut heritage uh, mm. almost a decade ago now, and yeah. he told me uh, we he, we basically had the same thought at the same time. We we basically worried um, or panicked. I think is the better the better uh, word for it. Mm that they may actually just come you know come forward now with their plans uh, bring forward a solidaire 2.0 elisa 2.0 whatever uh, solidaire 2.0 in this case um and do this again uh do you see this as a real risk
1: uh yeah there has been a lot of you know, discussion about this, the fear of uh, another study there and these um, areas which are very rich with uh, cultural and urban heritage. This yes. is the uh, historic fabric of the city, one of the last ones actually, which was already getting uh, heavily gentrified even before the blast. So we need to also uh, highlight that this is the it's not, the blast is not ground zero. Even prior to the blast, the, the forces of real estate development and the financialization of land, as we refer to it, has been operating full blast and has already erased a lot of our cultural and urban heritage. And the uh, organization, like Save Beirut Heritage and other heritage activists have been, you know, uh, protesting and, um, and demanding a more updated law to protect this this uh, cultural heritage and this urban heritage in Beirut for, as you're saying, for years now. Yeah. Uh, so the problem is not new. It's important to say that there ha- we have... Uh, legal and institutional setups in place that do not protect already the cultural heritage and the and the gentrification process as well ahead. Now, we are in a situation which is very different than the early 1990s when uh, Solidaire was put in place. We don't have the same flux of foreign capital that came to Beirut at the time uh, where, you know, there was a trust with the figure of Rafi Hariri that he would uh, salvage Beirut and that he would place it on an economic map. So even in terms of investment, people were sent a message that this is a good investment to make. We are definitely not in the same period now. Uh, I don't know who would place any penny in Lebanon at, mm. this, at this time. So we don't have that flow of capital that would, uh, you know, financialize land. Even within uh, Lebanon, I don't know how many people have the means to purchase uh property under the present circumstance and would choose to do it uh, in in these areas so for me the threat is much more a threat of displacement of people people leaving their homes because they're unable to stay within the the slow reconstruction process right. within the the very difficult financial setup uh, so people cannot even repair if they want to repair because their money is locked in banks or their money has lost its value and the flow of money of foreign aid even if there are a lot of pledges or a lot of money have have come already does not match the needs so we have very few people who are able to to remain and that there's a real fear of displacement, people choosing not to stay. And for me the fear is eviction and displacement and these areas becoming ghost towns or ghost areas or ghost neighborhoods that like we already see today in several sections of the city where you have, I mean downtown today is a scary place. It's uh, the the rate of vacancy in some neighborhoods of Beirut reaches up to 50%. Yeah, it's a
0: ghost town. Uh, and that
1: was yeah, so that's really something that um, I worry from much more than a Solidarity
0: 2.0. Like Speaking of that, actually, uh, would you mind bringing in a bit more of like Beirut Urban Lab, for those who don't know, and speak a bit about the importance of residents in reconstruction? I mean, it should be obvious that in Lebanon, residents mm. um, tend to be viewed by developers as more like obstacles rather than, you know, this is where they actually live. Uh, So again, like you know, we 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 mentioned solidarity. It is the obvious example here, but it does it does go beyond uh, solidarity at this point. And I'm wondering Mm -hmm. if, um, yeah, if we can just talk a bit more about like the importance of residents in any kind of proper urban planning, or at least let's say the the better kind of urban planning.
1: Yeah, thank you for this. This is very important and. Truly, it is often evacuated, although I I think people know this as common sense. So maybe let's start by reminding that cities function as not only through their physical fabric of buildings and streets and infrastructure, but they function primarily through people who inhabit these buildings and streets, open spaces and public spaces and commercial activities. People make cities people make neighborhoods. So the physical environment is not, you know, uh, the the only uh, variable that defines reconstruction. And I think we have a very good example of that. With Solidaire, again, we always go go back to it because it's such a fascinating case study of post-war reconstruction, from which you can derive so many lessons. So you see Solidaire as a very good example of reconstruction that is very beautiful and pretty, where, you know, we take friends and cousins and uh, expats who come and visit and we go and we walk there and we take photographs next to it. Couples go there to take wedding pictures because it's so pretty, but it's not what we call a lived space. It's not an experienced space. It's not a space where you can go and spatially practice that space that like you would do in other neighborhoods. And we have so many of them in Beirut and around Beirut that function as very lived spaces, even if they're not perhaps as pretty as Solidaire, but they they are lively. They are... They are uh, Vibrant. We like to go and walk there. Obvious examples are Hamra, although these days Hamra is not a very good example, but I think there are still components of Hamra where, you know, you walk and you enjoy it because you have people around and people can gaze on to each other and see what other people are, are doing you know this is what people like in cities and like in streets and like in open spaces we see it very well in Marim Khayil and Jamaise and Jaitawi that's why people have a very strong bonds with these neighborhoods that's why people choose to live there that's why people go and spend their evenings there and go and walk and and climb the stairs there and hang out there with their friends and their families and their friends so uh, so there's a quality to urban spaces in Beirut and many of its neighborhoods. And um, I don't want to single out these uh, neighborhoods that have a touristic layer. We see these qualities in places like Tari Ejlide, like Burj Hamoud, like Hattah Reik, like Birj brajni like barbour like mazara we we see that in all the places where you have a street life and we are a city with a very strong street life people live on the street put their plastic chairs there you have conversations with the grocer you have conversation with a hairdresser you can uh, if somebody asks you a question you can engage in a conversation with a total stranger we have that very strong social fabric in our social structure that we materialize in our streets and open spaces. This is a very crucial quality of urban life in Beirut. That's why certain people choose to live here because of this. And I'm not talking about also the, I would say the green layer that accompanies it. We have a lot of abandoned areas and lands that, uh, that are planted by people sometimes or that are left to themselves and that shade certain streets and that become, you know, almost like informal gardens in certain neighborhoods. Again, we have a lot of this in the in the areas hit by the blast. Carantina, we I haven't mentioned it, but is an area that where you don't have the urban heritage we think of when we think about urban heritage, but that have very rich sociospatial practices. This is what mm. we refer to as a keyword in urban studies. So with this introduction, you know what I want to highlight is that as people who have been uh, documenting uh, the city uh, not only of Beirut but you know uh, uh, like the urban fabric of Beirut and beyond like people who care about uh, uh, celebrating and uh, highlighting the importance of these socio-spatial practices and the importance of the social and the spatial, the physical and the social, and the economic, of course, because they're all interrelated, as people who are keen on advancing this and protecting these social spatial practices in cities because this is a key quality of public life that we need to preserve. We've established two years ago the Beirut Urban Lab, which, which has several functions, and I would say one of their key functions is to document number of dimensions about Beirut, including documenting these, uh, these practices uh, through uh, a data set of, uh, of information that is available open access to everyone. Everyone who uh, loves the city, who is interested in working on the city and uh, researching the city, because in the absence of information about the city, we cannot improve it. And as people who work on the city, we've been looking for a base map of Beirut for years. And every time, you know, we, we borrow a base map from someone, we uh, improve it a little bit. And it's never an accurate one. So we decided to do the job of, you know, the municipality. The municipality should have a base map of Beirut and all the layers of information about the city, social, economic, historic, heritage, um, Uh, information about public space, open space, who owns what, where, and understand the city to be able to intervene on it and and improve it, we decided that if the municipality is not going to do that, we're going to do it. And we're going to put it in open access and let's create the database of municipal Beirut. We'd like to do that for every city and town all over Lebanon, but we don't have the resources to do it yet, but we at least developed the methodology to do it and we'd be able to reproduce Uh, you know, base maps of all cities of Beirut, uh, of all cities of Lebanon and towns of Lebanon, in no time now that we've learned through the Beirut Municipal Map. So this is a map that's available in open access on our website. It's called the the Beirut Built Environment Database, the BBED. And uh, it includes several layers of information that can be downloaded using the ArcGIS software. Uh, So people who uh, work with these open um, access maps uh, can benefit from it. And we're ready also to share other layers of information depending on what is needed if people contact us. And we have been doing that now with the recovery with as many stakeholders as possible. So we've been informing the work of the order of engineers and architects. We have a partnership with Rice University in the US to produce a map of the damage assessment, which is also available online, and we're working on developing a 3D map of Beirut with them. We're also sharing this uh, data set with uh, INGOs and UN bodies whenever possible. So we're trying to do MOUs with these organizations to enhance this data sharing and to also benefit from any data that is being collected by others to feed our data set as well.
0: That's really amazing, and I, I will link the um, the Urban Lab project, I'll link it on the blog post as well, the associated one. Great. Um, yeah, so I have this quote uh, by Marwan Randur and Manafa and it's in an essay that I, I have been using in my own, in my own PhD. Uh, I'll just read it. Often associated with processes of healing, post-war reconstruction projects may be less related to the pre-destruction phase than to the actual act of destruction. This, at least, is what the Lebanese case suggests. In this essay, we argue that the spatial areas initiated by war destruction is consolidated during post-war reconstruction. This is, it was written in 2010, I should say.
1: Yep, and it reflects on both solidarity and Wa'ad, which brings yeah. back the two actors that you were mentioning, uh, the reconstruction efforts uh, led by uh, Hezbollah and Hartahreq with the Wa'ad project and those of uh, Salider and uh, his patron, uh, its patron Hariri in uh, downtown Beirut. I think it's a very apt citation to bring to the table and uh, to highlight that, indeed, the, the danger is in this post-war phase of um, there's a real danger of spatial erasure and displacement, because people are not put at the center of the urban policy of reconstruction. And when I say people, I don't mean, you know, all people. I mean being biased to the most vulnerable people, making sure that the disadvantaged people, and there's so many now in Lebanon, so many people are disadvantaged and underprivileged because of all the accumulation of inequalities over the past three decades. So we have so many people today who are unable to pay rent because the landlord is factoring um, is factoring rent in, U- in uh, us dollars and uh, has perhaps options to to find the tenants who could pay rent in fresh dollars and who doesn't really care about leaving it's the tenant that that have been housing for i don't know years in their building because and he prefers making income on that. And that's understandable from the perspective of a landlord, and we, would, we do, shouldn't expect the landlord to you know, uh, subsidize the tenant, we should expect the public actor to devise a policy to protect the tenant and to subsidize the landlord. And in right. the absence of a public actor that uh, uh, that thinks about these dynamics and thinks of ways of uh, reducing losses on the most vulnerable and taxing people who are able to be taxed to subsidize these operations, we can't do much and it will be left to the forces of the market. And of course, the forces of the market are disproportional and are in favor of people who have means and resources and will hurt the most vulnerable the most. Uh, So this is a real dilemma, and uh, it's and people again are go. I mean, the most disadvantaged people are again going to pay the price. So I'm thinking of of refugees, of migrants, of uh, of uh, female-led households, of LGBT populations, of uh, populations with disabilities. These are people that are the most a threat today in these neighborhoods, and of real danger of being evicted. And it goes beyond the neighborhoods affected by the blast. I mean, they're the the front line, but we see this all over in many neighborhoods across Beirut and across other cities in Lebanon. This is a real danger that we need to think of. And this brings me to a reflection on on this moment as a a possible opportunity to rethink the relationship of people uh, and the economy and people and reconstruction and people and urbanity. How can we, through these processes of recovery, and I use the word recovery rather than reconstruction knowingly because we really need to recover from all the the traumas we have been inflicted over the past three decades and the dysfunctional policies that have been produced, how can we rethink these relationships in ways where vulnerable people are at the center, where policies are designed to protect them foremost, where their interests are put as priority?
0: Yeah, thanks for that as well. And you sort of answered two questions in one, so thanks for being efficient as well. Um, (laughs) Okay. (laughs) um, The other question I had was, well, I'll will start before asking the question. I'll start actually by a citation, like a quotation by you. By you, uh, you uh, it was it's from your reflections in I think Jadalia right after the blast, and um, there's this, there's a sentence that really um, kind of hit home with me in a sense because it's sort of about me. I'm right now an expatriate. I'm I'm in Switzerland, and um, you spoke about some of the areas, especially of the those that were. Um, affected, and thinking here, especially of like Jemez and Montréal. um these are, and I'm quoting here, these are the sites which the diaspora is so fond of connecting with when they come spend their vacations in Lebanon. These are the urban spaces expatriates long to reside in as they embody the particular ambiance of a Mediterranean hybrid city. And mm. it's very interesting. I really like the way you put it, and you know, the Mediterranean hybrid city is something I've been thinking of quite a lot. It's sort of like this, when I speak of like um, I really genuinely believe of this potential that I have actually seen in with my own eyes in Beirut and in Lebanon more broadly, but especially in Beirut, um, a potential that is of course being squashed and squandered constantly by the, the ruling establishment as we know. I, I wanted to sort of um, ask two questions in one in some ways and it, it will sort of be like the um, uh, semi-final question that I have. Um, one is if we can speak about, and you did touch on this a bit, um, the link between urban planning and mental health, and the other question, which is it's a bit different, but we can sort of um, use it as a reflection towards the end, um, is what do you mean? What, what do you envision if you if you had the, let's say the the power, the resources to think of Beirut as this, I um, better let's say Mediterranean hybrid city. What could it look like, and what are some of these things that we could do differently compared to how we've been doing in the past three decades? Again, again, assuming we had the resources and everything, which of course is difficult right now, but let's try and imagine it. Um, if we had those at our disposition, how can we actually make the city better than than, than uh, yep. has been that that has been happening in the past three decades?
1: Yeah, it is very possible, you know, I I teach urban planning and policy and urban design to students who are extremely creative in, in answering this question. The solutions are there, so it's not like we are unable to imagine what it would be like, and this is maybe why it hurts so much for us as urbanists, because we are able to imagine how it could be like if we were not given the resources I think the resources exist, we have I mean we have been graduating urban planners and urban designers in this country since the mid-1990s, programs that train urban planners and designers to, do, to plan and think about replanning cities in better ways that are more inclusive, more diverse, more viable, more livable. Uh, They have learned this and they do it so well. I mean, the thesis projects of these students are all available in the libraries of numerous universities from the Lebanese University to NDU, to AUB, to LAU, to Beirut Arab University. All these universities have graduate programs that are training urbanists. We have the skills, we have the resources, we have the answers. The problem for me is much more the, finding operational tools through which to intervene, finding partners in, in public institutions with whom we can work to devise these, op- these solutions to, to be implemented. Uh, the, one of the first things my colleague, Mona of did at the Urban Lab after the blast was to go and to speak to the governor of Beirut and to tell him, we are here at your disposal, whatever you want, we are here to give you our resources and skills and expertise for free, let's work together. And the governor, you know, he was too overwhelmed with so many other requests that he was welcoming to this invitation, but never followed up. And then now the reconstruction process is being piloted by the army and the Higher Relief Council with some syndicates alongside and the Ministry of Culture, the heritage people are engaged. So that's good news for heritage perhaps, but overall the reconstruction procedure, the operation of it does not include urban planners and urban designers. So the, mm-hmm. the expertise needed to have a, a comprehensive approach to reconstruction is not being tapped on. And it is mind boggling for me, how it, it is that we graduate so many people and we have these resources and the resources also include the diaspora, the number of you know, people abroad who are ready volunteer who are already investing so much of time and effort and money in trying to inform the reconstruction process from afar is also humongous it's amazing this is what pushes you to to keep on working because you receive phone calls from people who tell you i can help i will organize this i will send money to do that and you you work with the little means you have so for me resources are not really a problem the problem is the the institutional setup and this institutional setup needs to connect to a public actor we cannot do it without a public ingredient even I, i would be willing work with you know a minute public ingredient that would help us protect the public interest because if we do it on our own without the synergy with public actors it's not going to go very far and some people are doing great work on the ground but it is limited in scope it's fragmented uncoordinated and it lacks connection to people because you know not everyone is able to to know everything and that's normal so uh, I don't know. I I lost the, the the stream of your question. So remind me.
0: <laughs> no, you you answered uh, basically <laughs> the 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 part about the hybrid city essentially, and so my okay. The, the yeah. Second, so yeah. so on
1: that on that I think what I want to say is that I'm really glad that you picked up on it because the the choice of the word hybrid was very conscious. I didn't want to use the word cosmopolitan, and I felt that hybrid was better, and I. I do think that Beirut has this amazing propensity to be a hybrid city. I think thanks to its history, when you read histories and novels and see movies about Beirut, I don't want to dwell into nostalgia, but it has this ability to be a home for so many different people that I think this quality of being a Mediterranean hybrid city that can be a refuge to so many different kinds of people will hopefully remain and will survive even though it's it's dwindling and it's harder and harder to find these safe spaces in the city today i think for people who live here we're looking for them and when we find them we're like you know like clinging to them like oh, okay i found a corner here there's still this cafe there there's still this little bit of staircase Here and this bougainvillea there and this view on the sea in this corner. So you know you you see glimpses of it always, and I want to believe that these glimpses will never go away and will be able to nurture them. I mean, the people of Beirut who will stay behind, who will stay here, who other I mean, new generations will come and nurture them and allow them to grow back. Like you know, it it has been happening for so many times maybe you know that's that's the way it's going to be it's going to die and you know and get revived in smaller ways always i don't know i don't like the image of the phoenix at all so i don't want to be alluding to it at all but i think mm. there's something in this place in this geography in its people and its histories that survives you know all these um violences that the city is always subjected to for maybe for more uh, decades and more than decades since before its creation even so this brings me to the to the role of the the potential role that urbanists and planners can play and how they have tools through which they can activate these spaces uh connect them to to each other and uh Enliven them, even they know how to do this because there are real tools through which you can do it. You can, and you have to do it in very subtle ways because you don't want to destroy any, every anything, and you want to keep the spontaneity and you want to keep the informality of it. You don't want to over-engineer it. You don't want to make it a museum like solidarity did. You don't want to just look at it in a picture. You want to live it. You want to live these spaces. So that's where the difficulty is. And this is where the work needs to be very sensitive and very subtle in in, in its intervention. So it's really intervention that should be from what we call from below, that should be very slow. We should not rush into repair and into reconstruction. Physically, I would I mean to say. We need to really understand the fabric and its multiple layers, especially its social and cultural and economic layers, to be able to identify what makes it work the way it it used to work, if it got destroyed, or it still works, because it's amazing that some parts of Jumayzi and Jaitewe and Karantina and, and Marimkhail today still operate. So you still have a street corner, uh, even though if all around is destroyed, where where you know old men come and put their plastic chairs and have a cup of coffee and create a, a public space that is you know temporary for a couple of hours it disappears after a while, but it creates a space where people gather and connect as humans and these are exactly the types of practices we need to preserve and we need to point to as urbanists so if the reconstruction process does not include urbanists. And sociologists and anthropologists and ordinary people who know that this street corner functions like that, who will never be able to uh, allow it to exist. I'm not saying to build it. Maybe it doesn't need building. Maybe what it needs is just uh, replant the tree that got destroyed. And that's it. So this would be the planning intervention some in some streets we visited what uh, needed to be rebuilt was uh, the uh, the uh, shade, shading device above uh, a store because this is where people met they only needed to be shaded from the sun and it was the shading device that needed to be repaired rather than the glass and this is what we're trying to tell the ngos that are repairing please repair the shading device, even though it's not on your list of priority, but the shading device will help people sit outside and create that, you know, hybrid space that makes this neighborhood, you know, a, a, a welcoming neighborhood, a place where you feel you belong, a place where you, people feel they can connect, where people feel they want to walk and spend time, where you have a human connection to someone while you're passing by, even if you're an expat visitor. Thing for two days so uh, yeah i think i probably tried to answer that without the mental health part but i can go back to mental health if you want
0: <laughs> thanks anyway and i mean it, it touches on this you know by default in some ways and mm-hmm. um so I'll, I'll just end with my own reflections and then sort of leave you the, the flow so to speak uh, to end with your own um, mm-hmm. For me, like Beirut is an, is an adopted uh, home in some ways. I'm not from Beirut. I'm from Mount Lebanon. It's always been this the um, the city that you know Mount Lebanon overlooks. So I would see Beirut every morning or see Beirut every afternoon or whatever. Mm. I would uh, just go on a walk with the dogs and I see Beirut. It's just it it was always in the background until I started my mm. uh, well now ten <laughs> ten years ago university and and whatnot. And it, it became this adopted, adopted, um, sorry, adopted uh, space, adopted home. And at some point, um, it almost became a bit too much. Like Beirut is just, it can, it, it can be very difficult to, to live in. It can be very difficult to love. It can be very difficult to, to even tolerate sometimes. I had, I had my moments where all I needed was just uh, get in the car and leave and just go back uh, to my hometown and just stay there for a while before. T- kind of like I would have to alternate because I couldn't stay in Beirut for too long. And this is why I I, sometimes when I don't manage to sort of see myself in Beirut and that's why that, that sentence of, you know, the expatriates long to reside in and especially in those in those kind of more quintessential neighborhoods that have this traditional architecture and whatnot. When I can't do that, I uh, end up reading some urban planning. I go actually go on Beirut urban lab <laughs> <laughs> i I uh, not necessarily even on Beirut, you know I can just read on on another city somewhere else where someone else has thought about this. some cities have managed to overcome these difficulties, others not so much. And so you kind of see that this philosophy, I guess or this experience, I should say um, at different stages, some still at the early stages some, um, you know, manage to make a, a city that 's more livable and that 's managing to kind of overcome some of these difficulties. I think a bit uh, of Barcelona in some cases because the city I know a bit, and you know it 's not perfect, but it does have this this component that I feel that uh, beirut can 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 learn from, for example, just to use a random example. So, this is from my side. I still, Beirut is very difficult. I, I don't um you know, I don't romanticize it or anything like this. It is a very difficult city as well. Um, but it is this potential that I sort of hold on to, uh, not because it's just a naive idealism, although there's nothing inherently wrong with that either, but it's because I actually saw, as I said, like i have I have seen that potential. I have seen those interactions that are usually like below the surface. Uh, interaction between Lebanese and non-Lebanese and kind of also creates this uh, dimension of well is Beirut just Lebanese or just Arab or can it be also more than that and you know it's all of those questions so I I guess I'm just saying that I do appreciate what Beirut Urban Lab does and what you yourself do in your own project and your own research and stuff and um, yeah I guess I'll just shut up on this and I'll let let you uh, reflect on your side and we'll end the conversation that way
1: yeah I think you touch on very key issues that I'm sure echo with a lot of the listeners, including myself. Um, I try to i would say just to echo what you're saying i I don't think there are any finite statement I could make um, I'm increasingly thinking about Beirut through its people and the, realizing that what connects me to the city, especially in these times of pandemic where i'm i'm increasingly staying home and uh, but i also think that it's an excuse because i'm um, i'm unable to love the city anymore after everything that has been happening to it mm-hmm. i live in hamra and hamra is transforming in a very very different neighborhood than it used to be a few years ago there's a much more impo- impoverishment that is uh, visible uh, much more decay and abandonment and uh, much less of this hybridity that uh, uh, always made me love to walk its streets and find an excuse to, you know, prolong my my walk and take detours to observe these little corners of beauty that I wanted to connect to, be it you know a jasmine tree or a or a uh, a cute little store or, or a pretty balcony or you know so the, it's very very hard to catch these in Hamra these days. So I think, um, because I want to, I don't want to see this uh, this transformation anymore. I'm hiding at home. I'm realizing this more and more recently that uh, it's not really the pandemic that make, that's making me stay. It's something. It's a disconnection from the from the neighborhood that mm-hmm. I live in. And even you know, I I work at aub, so whenever I go there, I'm even alienated further because there are no students on campus. And I see no one while I I walk on campus. And for me, it's like, it's very pretty, but it's empty. And that's Mm. what brings me to this idea of, you know, the city are its people. And I think the the pandemic and the departure of people from many spaces, public, private, semi-public, semi-private, and the fact that you have this emptiness and this difficulty of connecting humanly to other people even you know bodily connections being close in proximity to them even if you go to a place you have to distance yourself and push your chair away and not hug people you want to hug and not get too close to them or touch them as you know people in this part of the world often do you feel you cannot do that. I think that also creates a lot of disconnection with the, with the city. And I feel that you know uh, all these layers of disconnection are very, very hard to, uh, to make sense of and to even make sense of emotionally in our relationship to Beirut. So I too feel like you're saying that I need to go out and resource myself in somewhere else probably in connection to nature and love again, I would say the country <laughs> rather than the city. and Say, okay, no, this is beautiful. Talk to a little bit of people here and there, see the sea from afar. Remember that there you know, these, the, the I don't know, the, the emotional, the affective connections I have to this place beyond Beirut, I would say, and then come back to Beirut with a re- renewed <laughs> propensity to love it. <laughs> And doesn't work often you know it's a lot of ebbs and flows and i think there's much more uh, disconnection than connection these days but uh, as someone you know who has a lot of invest who has made a lot of investment in this place who has made the choice to stay repeatedly over the years so you know with with my partner we had several occasions w- in which we had this conversation we stay we leave we stay we leave and and we repeatedly chose to stay I think this investment we made over the years is grounded now in a way that it's able to sustain this disconnection. I I, I think that, in in that sense, it's very personal, the way you feel about things nowadays, to what extent one can sustain the disconnection and the alienation that is uh, dominant these days. So yes, it's uh, exhausting and there's a big sigh coming out from my body as I speak, (laughs) uh, where you know, I really feel the bodily exhaustion that the city and this, I would say this uh, exhausting political system does to us. And I'll end with that, I think.
0: Yeah, yeah, well, that's why I'm I'm grateful for the time you've given me on this. And yeah, I just... Thank you a lot for the time uh, to have this interesting conversation. Thank you, Joey. Thank
1: you. Thank you for having me. It's been really great talking to you.
0: My pleasure. My pleasure. Take care.
1: Take care, Joey.